Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, September 12th, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero. And Katrina, I was wondering if, uh, if Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were species of fish, what do you think they'd kind of be? I'm guessing a stone roller. That's probably a good guess. I think that's a good one. <laughs> jokes are back. We got some fan mail from Danny in Athens, Georgia, and he wanted the jokes to come back. So we're going to oh, do that. <laughs> Maybe for a bit. And we are very happy to welcome our guest, Bill Ensign, a recently retired biology professor at Kennesaw State University in Georgia. Bill's done some really cool work on the large-scale stone roller, which is one of a handful of recognized species in the genus Campostoma. So welcome, Bill. Thanks. Good to be here. So basics first. We know that stone rollers are considered one of those true minnows, and we've started digging into a few other members in that family. So we're talking fish like your dace, your chubs, your shiners, and your stone rollers. And that said, Bill, maybe you can help us kind of put this fish into context of that family and also give our listeners just a real kind of good picture of what these fish look like. So you're absolutely correct about where they fit systematically. I mean, they're part of the minnow family, which is 2,400 species worldwide. So it's one little piece of a much larger group. Within North American minnows, Campostum has always been recognized as unique. It never was included in any of the other uh, clades of minnows that we find in North America. So people have always known it was a little different. In terms of its appearance, they got very, very small scales, and there's usually sort of scattered brown or black modeling across the body, at least when they're not in spawning condition. And most of the other minnows in our area are bright little silvery fish. So they've been thought of as kind of common looking fishes. If you read some of the old book spot fishes of Virginia or Tennessee, they don't describe it in, in glowing terms. When I was taking my students out to the field to do field work and they would ask for identification characters, I'd say, think about a shaggy minnow. So it's got a kind of a tough reputation. You know? yeah. So maybe Rolling Stones is an is analogy for where the fish should, should sit. I'm not sure which one's Keith and which one's Mick. But. Uh-huh. <laughs> so um, like a lot of fishes, there's some difference in body size and appearance between males and females. The male stone rollers in full breeding tuberculation don't look anything like any other life stage. You know, the dark stripe, they get a, a very black stripe in the dorsal oh, cool. fin. Uh, some of them get reddish-orange fins. The tuberculation is extreme. I mean, it, lots of little bumps and bony protrusions, particularly on the head and back through the body. Turbicles, those are those, yeah, those bumps for folks don't know. They call them nuptial turbicles sometimes, yeah. right? With the, yeah, because yeah, of the breeding. Yeah, yep, really it's cool. a secondary sexual characteristic that appears during spawning seasons. A lot of Suprinas develop tubercles on the head. Campostum, it gets full body armor. When you first hold a tuberculate male stone roller in your hand, it's almost like sandpaper. Ah. And those, I, I know in chubs, those are made out of keratin, which is, you know, like the same material that like a cow's horns mm-hmm. are made out of, right? Or our fingernails, yeah. Or fingernails. And those, they fall off at the end of the breeding season, kind of like antlers in a deer, even though antlers are bone and not keratin, right? right? Okay. Exactly. So one of the other names for these guys is horny hits. And Bob Jenkins, in his book, The Fishes of Virginia, 
relates a really fun little anecdote about an experience he had when he was out in the field. He was out sampling one day. And as we often do when we're out in the country sampling fishes, we talk to landowners and make sure that they're not going to be averse to us being on their land. So he struck up a conversation and the farmer said, well, you know a lot about fishes. What happens to those horny heads? I mean, do they just go down into the substrate and disappear? And Bob said, no, those are, you know, horny heads are here year round. He goes, no, no, they're gone. They, don't, they go away. And he tried to explain to me the breeding circles. And the guy wouldn't listen to you. you know, he wouldn't, wouldn't take them at his word because he'd always seen these horny heads in the spring and they just disappeared once those tubercles were lost. And I always thought that was kind of fun, you know, when you're thinking about the way people perceive how nature works. You know, it can't be the same fish. No way. Fish don't change like that. They get those big white lips and everything. I, I can imagine how people can mistake them for being something completely different. It makes sense. So while we're talking about the tubercles and the spawning thing, I think one obvious question that might be coming up to listeners is, okay, you got this fish. It goes from creek cow to battle tank. What are they using these tubercles for? Is it for fighting? Is it for communication? Or what, what's the purpose of getting all these bumps all over the body? The older literature always suggested it was male competition, right? These are, these are the tools that I use to defend my pit nest. And that may be the case. I do know that I have seen multiple males over a single set of pits working together, you know, preparing their own little individual areas. And it's not uncommon to see multiple males over the same riffle area. So I think the jury's still out from my perspective. You know, I think a lot of these things that we interpreted early on as evidence that you know, nature's red and tooth and claw, we should probably reconsider a little bit more because things that result in death or dismemberment really aren't evolutionarily too stable. I have a question about their name that folks might be kind of thinking, why are they called a stoner? Or is that because of their breeding habits of kind of moving the stones and cleaning them off or actually their feeding habits? I think it's a little bit of both. They definitely flip the stones around when they're preparing the nest sites. Yep. They're not at the same level that the, the chubs and the Comus chubs do. I, mean, I don't know if you guys have had the, the folks yeah. on to talk about small, uh, chub We mouth. have, yeah, bluehead chubs. Everybody should know about chub mountains. Uh, yep. But yeah, yeah, they're not that active, but you do see them moving stones. Their feeding behavior too. I mean, they can disrupt the, the bottom when they apply pressure to smaller pebbles. So I think either one of those would probably be reasonable. That's cool. Probably the most distinctive characteristic of these guys is they've got a little cartilaginous shelf on their lower lip. And so if you turn them over, look straight down at them, you'll see a thin white line just along the edge of that lip. I'm curious, you're used to seeing fish, you know, that either have teeth or don't have teeth, but you're not used to having this little scraper there. So what do they use that for? Scraper is a good term because that's exactly what it is. If you watch these guys out in a stream where we've got clear enough water to observe them, You'll see them oftentimes moving along flat surfaces, boulders, the tops of uh, bedrock shelves. And they're taking that cartilaginous ridge and they're just pressing it right against that substrate and picking up whatever happens to be on it. Originally, if you look at the original descriptions for these guys, they often refer to them as herbivorous. And that's kind of what people would think because we associate those surfaces with algae and diatoms and the other primary producers. But I mean, if we get into 
what's actually growing on hard surfaces and streams, that's a whole community. I mean, it's kind of this matrix of fungal hyphae kind of threading through. There's diatoms in there. There's coupods, rotifers, you know, all sorts of microinvertebrates. And so it's a real smorgasbord of materials. And what they're really doing is making sure they get everything, all the good stuff. And that's what that bridge works for. You know, I think a better way to describe these fish, traditionally they've always been described as herbivores, but I think an opportunistic omnivore is a much better description for the way they go about their feeding. That's a really cool niche that they fill. Yeah, at least here in the Southeast, it is a very, very unique uh, feeding style. So if you were to kind of describe, if you were going to a stream where you might find these, what kinds of streams, what would those streams look like? Is there a typical kind of habitat these guys prefer? Well, I enjoy reading the older literature because it gives me an image of what we thought we knew about animals. And the earlier literature always talks about stone rollers being in relatively small to medium-sized cool streams with lots of cobble-pebble substrates. And so if you only go on those descriptions, you would imagine a fish that's not unlike many of our other southeastern meadows and even darters. You know, they need the, you would imagine cool, clear streams or warm water streams. Stone rollers are a particularly hardy fish. And so they've managed to adapt to a lot of different types of environments. I found them to some fairly unusual places in the urban areas. From an urban standpoint, what are you guys learning in these systems that are, you know, a lot of people around, you know, in terms of what's affecting these fish? How are they surviving in that urban kind of environment? As we shift from less impacted rural or forested streams, you know, across that matrix into suburbia, they've managed to find ways to find substrates that provide them that basic food that they need. And they have the adaptability in their guts to be able to process that. And if we think of many specialized feeders, either their feeding apparatus or their digestive capacity limits what they can actually process. You know, we talked about the outside of stone rollers. Their insides are unique too. Their gut is probably as long as that of any herbivorous fish. Wow. Seven to nine times its body length, if you want to coil it from the esophagus all the way to the anal sphincter, right? So that's long. It's under differentiated. They have no stomach. It goes directly from the esophagus into a slightly large opening, and it's just one continuous tube until we get back to the anus. It's also coiled around the swim bladder, which is also kind of a cool way to pack it in, right? But that long gut allows a long processing time for any food items that may be found. You're mentioning, you know, the digestive tract and how they have this adaptability. Did you talk about specifically the study where you found out that individuals can change their gut length depending on the food availability in different times of the year? So I had a student that wanted to do a directed study project with me, but trying to associate gut length with body length, right? Is there a relationship between those? And there was. But then when we pulled the data out even farther, the two streams that we sampled in, one was in a really, really nice forested watershed out in Paulding County called Raccoon Creek. The other was from a really heavily impacted urban stream. So we had this comparison. And when he measured those gut lengths, lo and behold, the urban gut length was shorter than the non-urban gut length. Initially interpreted that as an adaptation to the urban environment and assumed it was some sort of long-term adaptation that happened over time. Last student that I had that looked at this 
did seasonal comparisons and found out that not only does gut length change with urban impacts, it also changes seasonally in individual sites. So they can expand and contract the length of the gut depending on whatever happens to be out in the environment and available to you. And that's pretty amazing. I mean, it's not undocumented. There are, starlings are a good example. They're unbelievably adaptable and their gut lengths changes with season as well. So, you know, it's not unknown. I know it's the first time it was documented in Camp Austin. And so what kind of foods are you eating where you'd want a long gut and which kinds are you eating where you'd want a shorter gut? The gut is a very expensive organ to maintain, right? Because it's epithelium, so it's constantly sloughing off, right? Okay. So there's a balance between how much you can bring into your body, because the gut's really still outside, right? If we go from our mouth to our anus, we haven't really gone into the body yet, right? That's all outside that just runs through our body. So the amount of time that stuff stays in that gut is a function of how easy it is to digest. So the shorter stomachs, more easily digestible material, the longer stomachs would be things that are more difficult to digest. So that shorter gut in the urban areas would suggest they're feeding on something that's pretty tasty, right? Whatever those films on the surfaces of the boulders, you know, in the riprap banks, you know, as we get a stream across, you see a lot of them there in urban areas, you know, those big riprap banks where they've stabilized. It's a great place to catch in Boston. So there, there's something more nutritious in those urban environments that doesn't require them to have that longer gut length that less digestible material might have. That's fascinating. What do you think it is? I don't know. We didn't Are get that far. Okay. okay. <laughs> this is ah, all so research. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, somebody else is going to have to pick it up. More study is needed. Exactly. So I'm curious, you described it as kind of a shabby minnow earlier. Mm-hmm. It's very common. You know, a lot of people like doing work on either the big charismatic fish or the fishes that are endangered in some way. What led you to do research on something as common and as dull as the uh, large-scale stone roller? <laughs> uh, dumb luck. How about that? Is that a good... No, in, in all honesty, um, the school that I've been at for my entire, or the school I was at my entire academic career as a faculty member, when I got there was a small, relatively small liberal arts teaching school, right? And they encouraged us to do work that would allow us to engage undergraduates in the research process. And um, I was fortunate that I was able to work with local water authorities to include students on projects. But students would come in with particular interests in big questions that required usually relatively large numbers. So when I started thinking about study species and a species that could be found in a lot of different places in the area that we worked in, stone rollers seemed like a pretty reasonable choice because they can occur in everything from moderately urbanized suburban streams all the way to some of the nicest streams in the area and usually in good numbers. So it was, I don't say it was a matter of convenience, but I wanted to give students the opportunity to to really get their hands on and also potentially build on different answers that we got in working with the fish. So it was a combination of those two things. I think it's really cool that you got this common species that's kind of right in everyone's backyard right there in like suburban Atlanta. 
And you'd think, okay, if this thing's so common, all the research is probably already done on it. Yet you're able to go out there and work with undergraduates, no less, and actually get cool published studies out of it, learning about these fish. A lot of it has been things that students generated and we looked at it and went, wow, that's kind of cool. You know, nobody's really thought about working in that direction. I know you've got your list going of fish you've caught, and I'm wondering if you've caught any of these stone rollers, and if so, if you have a story for us. I have caught two stone rollers, each of a different species. I, I told the story when we were talking about the, the suckers last year, mm-hmm. and in that same hole, I did the same thing where I took one of these little size 30 hooks, mm-hmm. put on, I, I took a little mayfly larva, actually talking about them eating insects and stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I took a little insect larva, put on a hook, sunk it down in there and a stone roller came along and just picked that thing up off the bottom, a little mayfly larva. So that was one of them. And I'm going to tell another extended story here about uh, my attempts to catch a central stone roller. I'm going to set the scene. (laughs) This is probably my new favorite creek, or at least my creek of 2020, Crooked Creek out there in north central Arkansas. And you just Tons of cobble along the bottom, like the old studies, like Bill was talking about, used to say, you know, perfect stone roller habitat, just golden cobble. And you look out and you just see there's thousands upon thousands of these stone rollers. And as they're going and they're scraping their bottom jaw against the rocks, they'll kind of turn to the side. And so you'll see just these flashes. It's like stars just twinkling in the sky as far as the eye can see out over this whole river. But despite the large number of fish out there, you put like a worm or something, you're not going to catch anything. You might catch some, you know, dusky striped shiners. You might catch some Ozark chubs, maybe a smallmouth bass, definitely some long-eared sunfish, but none of the thousands and thousands and thousands of stone rollers. So I was out there wading around. I, I kind of turned my attention somewhere else and I started noticing the stone rollers feeding on the surface. Because you got these big schools of them, they're just hitting something on the surface. I'm like, this is a strange behavior. And so I watched closely and I noticed that something upstream had dislodged this algae. And it wasn't like the really filamentous stuff that you think of when you think of algae. It's real fine stuff on like a like a kind of sediment base. And as soon as you tried to pick it up, it would just dissolve in your hands and disappear. But they were coming up and hitting these things. And so very gingerly, I scooped up a piece of this out. I, I pulled out, I tied on the smallest treble hook that I have in my pack. And I just gently packed this on there and floated it downstream. And sure enough, one of these, probably about a six, seven inch stone roll, just came up and smacked that thing right off the top of the water. And so I was very <laughs> impressed with my resourcefulness. And my ability to catch one of these and add Campostoma. What's the central anulum? Amylum? Yeah, anamalum or anomalum, depending on who. Anam- anomalum. anomalum. Add, adding Campostoma anomalum to the life list. I was I was so happy. It was it made the trip. It was a great time. I remember, I mean, awesome story. When we talked about it, I called it a shabby fish. Dave Attenauer said it was purely uninteresting. Bob Jenkins called it a creek cow. I didn't know that that original specific name means splendid. I think that's right. Go back and look. So the original descriptor, and I think it was Agassiz, actually thought it was a splendid animal. So just goes to show tastes change. And I think, I mean, I'd encourage people who live in an urban environment where these fish are found to get out and try to find some. I mean, I remember poking around in streams when I was a kid. 
kind of in the suburban neighborhood I grew up in. And I always had a great time just looking at them and ca- I didn't know what they were. I just, I thought they were minnows. Yep. I think they were dace thinking back now, but um, yeah, it's just get out there and check the fish out in your, your backyard streams. Cause that sounds like they're pretty cool. And stone rollers would be a good one because they're pretty apparent in the springtime when it's spawning, right? If you got a, a clear water day sometime in say late February through even late May, Take a look at the riffles, the tail end of the riffles, and I bet you anything, if stone rollers are around, you're going to see them work in their pits. We hope everyone gets out there and enjoys all the fish. They're pretty nifty. And yeah, go, go find some stone rollers. Sounds good to me. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick, and my co-host is Guy Eero. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by David Hoffman. Production management by Gabriella Montaquin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. Fish.